Welcome back to TRP. Hi, and a very warm welcome back to the Rossler podcast. Today, we once again listen in to Mick Wallace and Claire Daly as they discuss the topics that are concerning those in the European Parliament. Hello and welcome back to IFRC Trouble with Daly and Wallace. And uh, Quinn isn't here, it's Thompson in the studio. I think the last Grab time I was here... back, yeah, he's, he's I think the last time I, think I was in the studio. she's tied up upstairs in a room somewhere to prevent her from coming down. <laughs> she's doing too good a job, I'm not going to be any use anymore. But... Um, oh, she's not that mad about doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> she might I think, be good at it, but she doesn't really be mad about doing it. I think the last time I did a podcast with you, uh, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister of the UK, probably. Dear, <laughs> so, oh dear. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a few developments over there in that island anyway there's uh rishi sunak has just been coronated so yeah must be nice for america well actually i got an email from an american saying you know it's, this is really surprising for us normally we're absolutely embarrassed to be the maddest planet on the earth now we're not actually <laughs> looking that bad looking at what's happening in the uk and indeed in the eu haven't heard burrell's remarks he was saying that too but anyway there you yeah. are a lot of mad people around these days yeah. Anyway, mm. let's uh, talk a bit about what's been the big discussion still in the parliament. Of course, uh, the war in Ukraine is top of the agenda. Um, where are we at the moment with developments here? What's the latest topic within the your, the war in Ukraine? Last week, you were touching on the big push now, which is the upcoming plenary to have a resolution calling uh, Russia a terrorist state. Um, and Claire and Mick, both of you spoke in that debate. And you already touched on that last week, right? Yeah, I think we did. Uh, I think the stage we're at now, it's a bit peculiar. I mean, there was already the last two days, there's been security and defence meetings, many of them held in camera, which means privately, all to discuss the war in Ukraine. And it's really becoming very samey. A lot of this is um, rattling the collection can, looking for more cash to fuel uh, the war effort. I suppose for me, the interest in developments now on the scene, and it's not just in Europe, it's globally, is a lot more talk now emerging of peace and the need for peace. Now, it's not as mainstream as we would like, but we are literally inundated with people every single day from across Europe and beyond complimenting us for our stance in the parliament, decrying the fact that not enough people are arguing for peace when it's so patently obvious and then sort of saying, what do we do in that regard? And when you match that, and there is more and more, and people from Ireland sending in that there's more uh, letters now getting printed in the Irish media looking for peace. We've seen the 66 countries at the UN uh, General Assembly arguing for peaceful dialogue. We see the likes of that poor Romanian fellow. You know, it's contradictory because the Mm. Romanian, what was he, a defence minister or whatever, making some gesture that we really (laughs) need to talk about peace or sitting down and talk. And he got sacked for saying that. So what you have on the one hand is a sort of a growing desire on the bottom of society amongst the majority of citizens and people that this madness is going nowhere and we need a different tack. That's been reflected a little bit more, but anybody who raises their head is getting dumped down on that as well. So I think we're at a really kind of an interesting juncture in this and it is emerging as a bit of a feature. I think, and on top you know? of that, you had the squad mm. recently there in the, in the mm. US Democratic Party also coming out with something kind of similar to what you said mm. about the Romanian minister. Again, just saying maybe a bit of dialogue would be a good mm. part of, of the tactic now. Mm. And, and, and they, had that, with, they had to withdraw their letter to Biden. Yeah. Because there was a letter sent to Biden, uh, more or less saying, look, this can't keep going on. This is getting worse. Uh, is it not time for a bit of dialogue? And they actually had to say it was a mistake. 
they were badger, badgered into saying it was the letter was sent by mistake, calling what? for peace. Hmm. What in God's name is the world <laughs> coming to? And I mean, and we still have we have people here in the European Union getting up and telling us that the EU is the greatest um, model and fighter for peace in the world, and that we do more for peace than anyone does anywhere, right? And we have done nothing for peace in Ukraine. Zero. We did nothing to stop it starting and we've done nothing to stop it since it did start. And it's like, we've done the opposite by, mm. by fueling Ukraine with more weapons so that more poor Ukrainians can die. All for what? What purpose are they serving? I mean, I keep... I, you know what now? There's... It's it's uh, it's three weeks now. So myself and Claire had the amendment in uh, in the plenary in the first plenary in October, where we called for maximum uh, opportunity to to search, you know, to leave no stone unturned to try and find a way towards peace and a way towards ending the war. Four hundred and thirty-six yeah. people of MEPs voted against it and 118 voted for it. Now, mother of God, what? Where's yeah. this going like? Well, I thought it was very interesting at the security and defence meeting this morning on one of the files that I'm a shadow for. The rapporteur from the EPP group made the point and it was about the military direction of the EU and he said the momentum of the Ukraine war needs to be exploited. That was his words. But in essence, this is what the establishment in the European Union are doing. They've been captured by the arms lobby who've wanted this direction forever. And Russia's decision to invade Ukraine has given them what they wanted because now the checkbooks are absolutely open on every single front in this regard. And it's money, money, money all the time. And that's the agenda that's going on. And we're trying to rein that back in. And I think Mick made a very good point at one of the committees earlier. He put to the speaker going, if you want all this money then on arms, where are you going to make the cuts? Where is that going to come from? And that's what this is a battle for resources, not just destroying mm. the planet and the environment, but it's a battle for resources that the arms industry is getting to pocket for itself. Like, But uh, that just reminded me of, of the session where this there was there was three different one guy, in guy in from the European Defence Agency, uh, the one from the European External Action Service, and uh, I forget where the other fellow was from. But this guy says, "Listen, we've got to catch up. We, it's, this is a wake up call. The European defence budget was a defence budget for peacetime. Mm. Now we've got to escalate. We're not at peace anymore. We need to escalate." And he says, to put things in perspective, he said. In the last 21 years, he said, the EU has increased its defence spend by 22%. He says, the Americans have increased by 66%. The Russians, he said, have increased by 280%. And the Chinese, he said, have increased by 600%. And I said, sorry now, I said. But I said, that's disinformation, I said. You are misleading anyone listening to you, I said with the way you're portraying those figures. Because I said, you're starting from a base. 21 years ago, Russia and China were spending nothing on defence. Because the the Russian economy was on the floor and the Chinese weren't prioritising defence spend because they were trying to get 750 million people out of poverty. (laughs) And I said, said, now let's look at the reality, I said. The real figures, I said, that you you didn't tell us today. And I want to ask you why you didn't tell it the way it is. Because I said, the Americans are spending more than the next nine countries put together. I said, and China and Russia are only two of those nine. 
I says the Americans are spending 12 times more on arms per year than the Russians in 2021. 12 times more. The EU, I said, spent over three times more than the Russians in 2021. And Europe as a whole spent seven times more than the Russians. That is EU plus Turkey and, and, and the UK. So, I mean, I said, they're the real figures, I said. Not the figures you gave, as I said. Your, your figures are misleading. Why do you do that, I said. He wouldn't answer my question. And as Claire said then, I, threw, I also threw the question at him. If you're wanting to spend all this extra money on buying new military hardware, driving up the shares of the arms industry, where is it going to come from? Because I said, when you spend money on new fighter jets and armoured cars and trucks and whatever, it has to come from somewhere and you rob it from somewhere else because you only have a certain pot of money. Right, says I, you tell me, I said, where should the cuts come from in order to buy all your new military hardware? They refuse to answer my question. I think it is. And that money is behind a lot of this. I mean, if you look at there was a a foreign interference committee meeting today and there was a so-called experts coming in and all of these come from think tanks with an agenda to push and, you know, a bag of money wanting to be collected. But there was a document called Extremist Discourses about Russia's war against Ukraine. And they're saying the war has opened up a whole new front of disinformation. And one of the disinformations they attack is the peace narrative, as they call it. And this is being disseminated by populists across Europe. And we have to be very careful because they do things that are so extreme, like they talk about the humanitarian narrative. They focus on the protection of human lives and use this moral argument to try and win people. How dare they? What an outlet you would talk about the victims in a war. The second thing they'd say, well, there's conspiracy concerns. If this war gets out of hand, there might be other countries dragged into it and people living in Hungary or Bulgaria might be impacted. But if you say that and you're in those countries, you're a puppet of the Kremlin. Not that actually, that's a pretty sensible thing to say. Yep, human brains lose their lives in a war. Yep, if the, once a war starts, it gets out of hand and there's a security concern. Then they say things like the sanctions that people who say that they're choosing between heating or eating in part because of the sanctions, that this is an outrageous slur by Russia to try and divide the good citizens of Europe from their leadership. I mean, this is mental stuff. Do you think people living in Europe now can't think for themselves and say, hang on a minute now. Well, I'm definitely poorer now than I was. As I said at the meeting there, they're reading the front page on The Economist, which talks about Europe going into recession and Russia coming out of it. And they're saying, well, it doesn't look to me like Russia's suffering that much, but I'm sitting at home. I can't turn my heating on. I can't make the bills and I'm suffering. And meanwhile, there's record numbers of Ukrainians arriving on Europe uh, into the EU because the war is going on. I mean, that is just reasonable, normal dialogue in society, but it has been hijacked, called disinformation. And all of these things, thanks to come in and say, we're behind on this. We need money to combat Russian disinformation. And we say as well, there's not much evidence in that now. That's because we haven't got enough resources to get it. We need to spend more money into this area. So all of these people who come in here, who inflate these threats, get loads of money for it, tell the MEPs what they want to hear and then they go and give them more funds to come in and do it all over again. Meanwhile, the world is even further away from peace. It's just lunacy and this place is full of it. Yeah, not very illuminating stuff. And it's getting picked up at home. I mean, one of the things that was absolutely disgraceful was the decision of the EU to train 15,000 troops and give 500 million of European taxpayers' money to fund um, military funding in Ukraine. And Ireland is participating in that. Ireland is participating in that 
in the middle of a war. Unbelievable. And there hasn't even been much attention of it at home in the Dáil or anywhere else that this isn't being screamed about from the rooftops. Do you remember that thing called the triple lock? Mm. Where uh, no serious decisions around military activity could happen at home Mm. without uh, one of the the triple lock. Obviously, it had to be passed by the cabinet, uh, had to be passed by the Dáil. Well, did the Dáil get a vote on this? Mm. I don't think so. I don't know if they are going to or whatever, but uh, yeah, no, no. Well, all the so. government well, are out fully I mean, behind I mean, it. Obviously, with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the Greens, uh, with the majority anyway, I mean, they'll probably vote for it anyway. But it's not actually what the Irish people want. Absolutely not. Tra- training, I mean, these training missions are so goddamn stupid. As you know, I, I, I've already spoken about it, but I was down in Mozambique a couple of weeks ago looking at EU training missions. Absolute, absolute nonsense. A waste of European taxpayers' money. Millions and millions of it. Mm. Training Mozambique soldiers. What the hell in God's name? We don't train in Mozambique supporters. What are we going to the borders of Ukraine to train soldiers for? Mm. To make sure the war doesn't stop? I think one of the interesting dynamics as well that's come into it is the whole refugee issue, which has become very much centre stage at home during the week when the Ukrainians were left without accommodation for the first time. Um, And some had to sleep on the streets, I think. And then there was some temporary accommodation provided in the airport. But uh, we've noted here in Brussels, uh, really deteriorating situation regarding the refugees arriving in Brussels and it is getting into winter time. Obviously, it's weather is mild now, but that is obviously going to change. But where now for the first time, unaccompanied minors are being put out in the streets of Brussels. Um, the Red Cross and so on will only deal with Ukrainians. So the refugees who are ending up on the streets are generally Afghans, Palestinians. A lot of them end up in, in Brussels, some people from Africa and so on, and families in the last few nights have been left without accommodation on the streets here. As a matter of course, no men will be accommodated here in Brussels unless they're Ukrainian. Uh, Other migrants won't be. And it would seem from skirting around the media in Ireland that the accommodation crisis is absolutely massive there as well with this. But you'd think against that backdrop, because obviously everybody should be able to live in their own home in peace that you'd be thinking they'd be saying, well, listen, the best way to deal with this and assist these people is to try and get a deal so that they don't have to leave their homes in mm. the first place. And stop the war. Yeah. Exactly, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, myself and Claire would have done, uh, we would have um, interacted with the Red Cross at home uh, on refugees in the past. And the Red Cross have done some really good work on refugees. But to think that now the Red Cross are being told that they're only to deal with Ukrainians and forget about everybody else. Mm. Now, it's called racism, but who would have ever thought that we'd have got to that space? Mm. It's just, it's shocking. Well, I think it is as well, like, I mean, to hear, and obviously the the radio waves or whatever were dominated by Micheál Martin falling over himself and, 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 you know, Michael McGrath prostrating himself, how sorry they were and they were going to move mountains now to accommodate all these uh, Ukrainian refugees and it wouldn't happen again and the Ukrainian ambassador was saying it wasn't good enough, uh, didn't know whether she opened the embassy to let a few of them sleep on the floor there or not. But 
it is a huge difference to their lack of action in dealing with other migrants and dealing with so many other Irish homeless people as well. And people are afraid to say that because you're kind of saying, oh, that's been racist or you're being anti-Ukrainian. And I said, of, of course it isn't. We have said we welcome and we actually aren't in favour of borders anyway. So if anybody wants to come from Ukraine or anywhere else to Ireland, I don't have a problem with that. God knows the Irish have gone to every corner of the mm. globe for years enough. It's not about that. But there is a double standard now uh, and really, the Irish government have weaponized this issue in a very improper way. Well, the, the, the Irish, uh, the Irish governments for the last number of years have shown that double standard. Anyway, mm. only now it's been has been exposed. They pretended to care about migrants and refugees. We herded them into doors that we that, that most of them had to get in here illegally. We said they told us they couldn't afford to take in refugees. Mm. There was only a small number that could take in from any country. Now there's no limit to it, right? This is the attitude they should have to them all. They should let them all in. But, I mean, they have exposed themselves by taking going to this place now. It's just absolutely... Uh, it's so irrational, like. I mean, it beggars belief that they can actually stand up and, and just spout out this stuff as if this is normal. Because it isn't normal. Well, yeah, you're right. And it's only no limit if you're Ukrainian. Yeah. Because obviously we, every day we get desperate people from other parts of the world. But for example, I've had representatives of the Afghan women's football team who'd all been promised visas to Canada when the Taliban took over a year ago. And a good few of them got out, but a bunch of them didn't. And they're young women footballers, can you imagine, stuck yeah. in Afghanistan now with the Taliban. They're desperate to come out. I'd had representations yesterday from 73 female Afghanistan judges who are stuck underground basically now looking to get out. We hear all this about women's rights and sort of, you know, different rights and all of this kind of stuff. Where's the response from the EU to deal with those groups of people who put themselves out on a limb there? Now, obviously, we've contacted the Judges Association. We contact other European bodies and so on. But it's fallen on deaf ears. Let's be honest about yeah. it. They won't take any of them in. Humanitarian response. Yeah, well, OK. It's just funny, but in uh, about 25 hours ago, there was a terrible attack uh, on a shrine in Shiraz in Iran. And the UN... And various countries from all over the world have condemned the attack, which ISIS have claimed responsibility for. 24 hours and the EU and the high representative Joseph Burrell are still silent. They have not condemned the ISIS attack in Iran. Mm. Now, what does this tell us? What? Do the Iranian lives not matter? Well, you could be forgiven for thinking they didn't, given that we have imposed sanctions that have actually that are killing people in Iran, the same as we're imposing sanctions that are killing people in Syria. ISIS. Now, people shouldn't forget that while the Europeans and the Americans fought against ISIS after in late tw- starting in late 2014, previous to that, they helped to arm them. The Americans, with the support of the Europeans, armed ISIS in the early days. And now people found out that ISIS were one of the most violent groups mm. that ever, ever touched the planet. My God, mm. the, the destruction that they caused in Iraq alone and in Syria mm. is is unspeakable. And we have an attack yesterday on a shrine in Shiraz in Iran. Mm. And it in 24 hours, Joseph Burrell, who... Is it would condemn within five minutes an attack in Ukraine. 
and he's right to condemn the attacks in Ukraine. Mm. But my God, the lack of consistency and the hypocrisy of this place make you sick. Is it because it's in the jungle? Yeah. That's about it, yeah. yeah. Let's go to some other parts of the world, uh, some tropical parts of the world as well for Burrell. Um, there's a lot of still happening in Haiti. There was a debate on it um, last week about what's happening there. People are taken to the streets. Uh, there's calls for military intervention by the government there. Make to walk us through it a bit because it's not the highest point on the news at the moment, but it's major developments. Yeah, it's gas, yeah, because um, the US have actually asked for a UN resolution to allow them to invade. Now, they'll probably invade if they feel like it anyway, right? Whereas they normally do. But the sovereignty of Haiti has been totally ignored. And we said that sovereignty really mattered when Russia invaded Ukraine. And sovereignty does matter. And Russia were wrong to invade Ukraine. But it seems it's okay for the Americans to invade whoever they like. But there's, uh, for 200 years, it's over 200 years now since Haiti first tried to establish uh, an independent streak and go their own tack. And they've been punished mostly by the French in the, in the first hundred years and by the Americans in the last hundred years. They have been criminalised and beaten down. They must be incredible people. Yeah. They're amazing, they are, right? And right now, they're, they're, they've been on the streets for weeks in tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands some days protesting. And there, there's a, a, president, a president in there, right? And... Uh, Henri's his name, right? Ariel Henri. But he was put there by the Americans. So he's only a puppet of the Americans. And he's calling for the US to intervene because he's lost the run of the place, because he's lost control, imposing uh, Western-style uh, neoliberal policies that are crucifying the people. And this American puppet is calling for the Americans to come back in with troops on the ground to restore order, right? And the European Union is okay with it. So, so the sovereignty of Haiti doesn't matter. The last thing, the absolute last thing that Haiti needs now are foreign troops on the ground. More foreign troops walking around the place. My God, they need foreign interference to stop. Leave them alone. It's their country. It's not belong to the Americans or the EU or anyone else. It's their own country. Leave them alone. Well, I think it is because it's foreign interference, as Mick says, that got them to that place, like all of the history of coups, invasions, undermining them, all the rest of it. And now under the pretext of the country being in disarray, and it is, and criminal gangs running amok and all sorts of social unrest, but it's been orchestrated to sort of create the climate. Oh, this is ungovernable, therefore we need help come in and invade us and help and sort it out. But the people are having none of it. They've seen well through it. And I, you know, we made the example, it is, it must be an incredible place. It was the first country to abolish slavery. It was when they, you know, they were the first country in the world to... Um, have in their constitution anti-racism like you know and they when they got rid of the, the French and so on and they were a really progressive and radical society actually and that's probably the reason why they had to be interfered with because you couldn't get that type of thing you now catching root maybe some of the other countries would start getting to like it as well so they've been destabilised really since then but I think it is another example of the of the double standard you know yeah, um, another country that was on the agenda as well last week, um, you both spoke on it, I think, is on Tunisia. Um, I didn't. You didn't know nothing about no, it. Just make, <laughs> go on, yeah. walk us through that. Um, yeah, listen, Tunisia has been in a bit of turmoil uh, for a while and uh, Parliament has been suspended a few times, that kind of thing. 
but um, they're in, they have a lot of problems, right? But uh, <laughs> if you want to see where their problems start, right? Uh, the the IMF, the EU, the World Bank, they have pushed austerity on the country now, right? And they've they've introduced these neoliberal reforms that are absolutely devastating society mm. in Tunisia and making life impossible for them. And right now, as we speak, in the last couple of weeks, right, the IMF has been forcing the government to reduce food subsidies in exchange for a new loan that will go to pay off previous loans. Now, th- that's a bit like the Irish government borrowing billions so that we would pay back the banks, the failed, useless banks that weren't worth saving in Ireland. But the reason we did it was because those banks owed the German and the French banks and the British banks a whole lot of money, and they wanted our money back. So we were told we had no choice, and we had to borrow money to pay, our back, pay back our banks who were useless uh, so that they could give the money back to the European banks, right? Well, the same thing is happening in uh, Tunisia today. And, I mean, this is causing huge cuts to education, uh, to uh, health. Uh, the EU recently bought a whole lot of ambulances for Tunisia. But because of the cuts now, there's, the, the, there's, there's no drivers to drive them. The, just out of all the social cuts that they're introducing. It just doesn't make any sense, right? But And then you have anyone that's qualified uh, looking, because the wheels are coming off, they're looking to get out of the country. Mm. And uh, so you have a big uh, drain grain, a brain drain mm. uh, to Europe, right? Now, we're benefiting and that we're getting their best and most qualified uh, to work in Europe and we're leaving them uh, in absolute shit like I mean just so bad right but I mean this is debt trap disaster capitalism in action that's exactly what it is and in Europe here I mean you couldn't but be uh, struck every week at some stage by listening in the committee and in the plenary and all about oh the threat of migrants the threat of refugees we must keep Europe safe we are creating migrant flows with our policies in these countries in Africa. We create the migrant flows, and then we wonder where they're coming from. Mm. My God. Mm. Yeah, okay, that's our quick uh, run around the world with what's been on the agenda lately. Um, something else that we've talked about before, um, and it's, of course, in the context of us going into a cold winter with not so much energy. Well, there is a lot of gas storage now because there's been a lot of um, efforts to try and fill the gas before the winter, but next year's going to be even tougher. But the big issue around energy at the moment is on windfall um, profits from the big energy companies and what to do about that with taxes. Um, Mick, what were you saying last week on that? Yeah, look, I mean, um, people are saying, oh, you know, there should be a, a windfall tax now on some of the energy profits from the energy companies, right? But I mean, the truth is that these energy companies are making a fortune all the time. It's just making even more now. And what this was even doing was calling for an energy, not on all their profits, but on their excess profits on the energy companies. Mm. right? And people are going mad that, oh, you're, you're, uh, I heard there was an Irish MEP attacked me on some RTE programme <laughs> saying that I was calling for 100% tax on energy companies. I was calling for up to 100% tax on excess profits, right? Not profits, right? But I mean, 
It's almost, oh, this is terrible. Calling for tax on, on energy profits? Uh, I mean, what's gone, what's gone wrong with us? We're, these guys are, are, are reefing us at the moment. But I mean, it's not just them that are making excess profits all of a sudden. Have people any idea the, top, the profits that the arms industry are making of late? Arms shares in, in general, in, in the last time I checked in Europe alone, uh, and it's worse in America, have gone up over 20% since the war started in Ukraine. Mm. So th these guys are making a fortune. Mm -hmm. Now, they were already making a fortune over supplying arms uh, to the Saudis and the UAE to commit genocide in Yemen, mm. which we don't give a damn about. They don't care. doesn't matter that 400,000 are dead and 16 million are starving. We don't care about them. But, I mean, why aren't we taxing the military-industrial complex their crazy profits? How come? Are they running the place? Clearly. Well, yeah, we like to keep the military under wraps in any case for every side of it, whether it's the profits, whether it's its destruction, whether it's its environmental damage. It's very hard to, to scratch at the surface there. Won't get very far. No, well, I suppose but, like, yes. you know, obviously the hypocrisy that we see abroad is very much at home as well. And there were a number of sessions this week with the fundamental rights situation in the European Union itself which obviously gets a lot of headlines and everybody loves to kick Poland and Hungary and so on. It's very much in vogue. But then some of the big offenders don't get any call out at all. So you have countries like France, for example, where the judges in France wrote to the commission basically saying that there were laws being implemented in France to undermine the independence of the judiciary, calls for the European Commission to take action. And not only do they not take action or not even mention that in the report that they publish, they actually praise France for bringing in reforms that haven't even been brought in or implemented yet. So you have this double standard where if you're one of the big boys in the gang, you get away with doing whatever you like. And then if you're generally, if you're an Eastern European country, bar you're kind of in with the pro-European set, you'll get a kick. And it's this double standard that's really undermining the credibility of the EU in the hearts and minds of people. And they say, no, no, it's Russian disinformation that's undermining our citizens' confidence. No, it isn't. It's actually your own actions in dealing with these things. It's just very, very bad. Like they produced this rule of law annual report now. The Parliament has called a lot for that to be independently assessed and run, but the Commission don't really want to go there as of yet, you know. But um yeah, like look at it. it's 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 another example, I suppose, of the the two tier nature that we're in, isn't it? Yeah. But well, I wonder should we propose a new name for the European Union, right? Mm. Instead of the EU, how about the EUOH? The European Union of Hypocrisy. Yeah. Would that, could, would that work? Mm. EUOH. Where are you working? I've been yeah. working in the EUOH. Where well, are you it working? certainly resonates with people who are not just Russian puppets. They can just see the ridiculousness for themselves. But I suppose one hope out of it was, I mean, I did have one meeting this week. I'm on the Europol Scrutiny Group, which is a body that's made up of members of Parliament and the national governments and members, a small number from the Libe Committee, of which I have the fortune or misfortune, whatever way you want to look at it, of being one. And when we were in the Dáil, the Justice Committee used to always go, Cuevin O'Quailon and Martin Conway used to be always going to these Europol meetings. We used to hear about it back. Didn't seem to be anybody there from Ireland the other day, at least not when I was there, unfortunately. But I thought what was interesting was a whole number of delegates from the national states raised the issues, and Europol is the police cooperation body for the EU, about arms to Ukraine and where were these arms going and what was the scrutiny on it and fear about them coming to bite back to bite the EU, which is an issue that we've raised. Now, the panel didn't like it at all. The Europol one was kind of going, mm-mm. 
Uh, that's uh, arms going in as a matter for member states. But we have discussed with the Ukrainians now and we've asked them to try and set up a little register, you know, that if people have some firearms and that, it'd be nice to record them. And we've asked them if they wouldn't mind sharing the ownership with us, just in case later on they might appear somewhere else inadvertently kill somebody or blow up a little town. Um, so we've asked them that and they're looking at that. They're bringing in a law like nine months into the war like, and they're bringing in a law to deal with this. When the heart, And she confirmed that weapons sent to help the war in Ukraine have been for sale on the black market and they established that was the case. But I just thought it was interesting that actually real members of national parliament and in fairness one or two of them uh, made contact with me to meet up afterwards which is good. They're mm. a bit more reflective of real people than the people living in this bubble. Yeah. There was an American TV station. Uh, is, it, is there a station called CBC? I, I, I forget which one it was, right? CNBC. But I mean, they're, they're one of the mainstream ones, right? But they ran a program <laughs> on... Uh, they went over to Ukraine and done a bit of research on where the weapons are going. And they found... They, they maintained with their program that only 36% of the arms going to Ukraine were going to where they were supposed to go. 36%? Only 30, A little over a third were going to where they're supposed to be going. The rest of them had been sold. They had to pull the programme. They were put under so much pressure. So the, the programme was pulled. But they, they had aired it um, mm. for a bit or something. I don't know whether it was a few episodes or what. Mm. But they did air it because the New York Times, which is a, a Pentagon uh, right mag, uh, they actually uh, published the story. It reminds me of this uh, segment I saw where there was a, a journalist on the ground being interviewed in the Ukraine about uh, what's been just happening there. And then as soon as she says... And Ukrainian uh, bombs have hit a hospital near, uh, straight away, cut off, completely black screen. You cannot yeah. talk about it at all. <laughs> so as soon as there's been mentioning of Ukrainian attacks that have actually hit civilians, there was, yeah, p- plug poles. Can't hear that. But so that was, yeah. that's really fucking worrying. I mean, listen, we've, we've insisted all along that both sides tell lies in war. You cannot believe either side. But sadly, the likes of RTE are only putting out one side mm. and it's the Ukrainian side. So if you go home in the evening after work and you're watching television having your supper and you're looking at evening after evening terrible things the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians and you're not seeing any bad things that the Ukrainians are doing to the Russians. right? So, I mean, you can forgive the people actually having such a, a one-sided view when this is all they have access to. Mm. People need to understand that both sides are creating atrocities. Russia are obviously 100% wrong to have invaded Ukraine, but both sides behave badly in wars and both sides tell lies. And for RTE to present on one side only is not real news. That's making the news to suit their own agenda. Well, it's also this trying to downplay, which some people have believed, if you like, this idea that it isn't a proxy war, like, you know, unfortunately, and we would think that the evidence of what's happened in the last months prove it, is that the people and the country of Ukraine has been sacrificed on the altar of a battle between the US and NATO and Russia, and they are quite happy to have that continue to whatever is left of Ukraine and its people. And unfortunately, the decisions are not being made by the heroic Ukrainian people as the Mm. Sakharov Prize here award is when they're being made in Washington and in NATO HQ, and they will be the ones to call off this madness. And we can only hope that some of the shift in the ground towards peace and where this madness is going to end up because of the economic 
destabilization, but also the potential nuclear destabilization that sense mm. will prevail and they'll get somebody around the negotiating table sooner rather yeah. than later. And we have a, a mini plenary coming up soon, other plenaries ahead. And I know the two of you put down requests now, I think it's fourth or fifth plenary now in a row to have a debate and resolution on an immediate ceasefire and efforts for peace in the war. Uh, for that to be on the agenda, you need a majority of political groups to support that. We haven't had that majority yet, but it doesn't mean it's not going to stop. Uh, so let's see where we go with that. Hopefully, hopefully, for, for everyone's sake. Yeah, that's it for now. See you next week. Ciao, All the best. Ciao. Bye-bye. As always, a big thank you to Mick Wallace and Claire Daly for the use of this material. Keep on listening to TRP.